Chapter Six, Part Two, of the Formation of Vegetable Molds Through the Action of Worms, with Observations on Their Habits. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Part Two, The Denudation of the Land, Continued. Castings blown to leeward by the wind. We have seen that moist castings flow, and that disintegrated castings roll down any inclined surface, and we shall now see that castings recently ejected on level grass-covered surfaces are blown during gales of wind accompanied by rain to leeward. This has been observed by me many times on many fields during several successive years. After such gales, the castings present a gently inclined and smooth or sometimes furrowed surface to windward, while they are steeply inclined or precipitous to leeward so that they resemble on a miniature scale glacier-ground hillocks of rock. They are often cavernous on the leeward side, from the upper part having curled over the lower part. During one unusually heavy southwest gale with torrents of rain, many castings were wholly blown to leeward, so that the mouths of the burrows were left naked and exposed on the windward side. Recent castings naturally flow down an inclined surface, but on a grassy field, which sloped between ten and fifteen degrees, several were found, after a heavy gale, blown up the slope. This likewise occurred on another occasion, on a part of my lawn where the slope was somewhat less. On a third occasion, the castings on the steep, grass-covered sides of a valley, down which a gale had blown, were directed obliquely instead of straight down the slope, and this was obvious due to the combined action of the wind and gravity forecastings on my lawn, where the downward inclination was zero degrees forty-five minutes, one degree, three degrees, and three degrees thirty minutes, mean two degrees forty-five minutes, towards the northeast, after a heavy southwest gale with rain, were divided across the mouths of the burrows, and weighed in the manner formerly described. The mean weight of the earth below the mouths of the burrows, and to leeward, was to that above the mouths, and on the windward side, as two and three-quarters to one, whereas we have seen that with several castings, which had flowed down slopes having a mean inclination of nine degrees twenty-six minutes, and with three castings, where the inclination was above twelve degrees, the proportional weight of earth below to that above the burrows was as only two to one. These several cases show how efficiently gales of wind accompanied by rain act in displacing recently ejected castings. We may therefore conclude that even a moderately strong wind will produce some slight effect on them. Dry and indurated castings, after their disintegration into smaller fragments or pellets, are sometimes, probably often, blown by a strong wind to leeward. This was observed on four occasions, but I did not sufficiently attend to this point. One old casting on a gently sloping bank was blown quite away by a strong southwest wind. Dr. King believes that the wind removes the greater part of the old crumbling castings near Nice. Several old castings on my lawn were marked with pens and protected from any disturbance. They were examined after an interval of ten weeks, during which time the weather had been alternately dry and rainy. Some, which were of a yellowish color, had been washed almost completely away as could be seen by the color of the surrounding ground. Others 
had completely disappeared, and these had no doubt been blown away. Lastly, others still remained, and would long remain, as blades of grass had grown through them. On poor pasture land, which has never been rolled, and has not been much trampled on by animals, the whole surface is sometimes dotted with little pimples, through and on which grass grows, and these pimples consist of old worm castings. In all the many observed cases of soft castings blown to leeward, this has been effected by strong winds, accompanied by rain. As such winds in England generally blow from the south and southwest, earth must on the whole tend to travel over our fields in a north and northeast direction. This fact is interesting, because it might be thought that none could be removed from a level, grass-covered surface by any means. In thick and level woods, protected from the wind, castings will never be removed, as long as the wood lasts, and mould will here tend to accumulate to the depth at which worms can work. I tried to procure evidence as to how much mould is blown, whilst in the state of castings, by our wet southerly gales, to the northeast, over open and flat land, by looking to the level of the surface on opposite sides of old trees and hedgerows. But I failed, owing to the unequal growth of the roots of trees, and to most pasture land having been formerly ploughed. On an open field near Stonehenge, there exist shallow circular trenches, with a low embankment outside, surrounding level spaces fifty yards in diameter. These rings appear very ancient, and are believed to be contemporaneous with druidical stones. Castings ejected within these circular spaces, if blown to the northeast by southwest winds, would form a layer of mould within the trench, thicker on the northeast than on any other side. But the site was not favourable for the action of worms, for the mould, over the surrounding chalk formation with flints, was only 3.37 inches in thickness, from a mean of six observations, made at a distance of ten yards outside the embankment. The thickness of the mould, within two of the circular trenches, was measured every five yards all round, on the inner sides near the bottom. My son Horace protracted these measurements on paper, and though the curved line representing the thickness of the mould was extremely irregular, yet in both diagrams it could be seen to be thicker on the northeast side than elsewhere. When a mean of all the measurements in both the trenches was laid down, and the line smoothed, it was obvious that the mould was thickest in the quarter of the circle between the northwest and northeast, and thinnest in the quarter between southeast and southwest, especially at this latter point. Besides the foregoing measurements, six others were taken near together in one of the circular trenches on the northeast side, and the mould here had a mean thickness of 2.29 inches, while the mean of six other measurements on the southwest side was only 1.46 inches. These observations indicate that the castings had been blown by the southwest winds from the circular enclosed space into the trench on the northeast side, but many more measurements in other analogous cases would be requisite for a trustworthy result. The amount of fine earth brought to the surface under the form of castings, and afterwards transported by winds accompanied by rain, or that which flows and rolls down an inclined surface, no doubt is small in the course of a few scores of years. For otherwise, all the iniquities in our pasture fields would be smoothed within a much shorter period than appears to be the case. But the amount which is thus transported in the course of thousands of years cannot fail to be considerable and deserves attention.
Aide Beaumont looks at the vegetable mould which everywhere covers the land as a fixed line, from which the amount of denudation may be measured. Footnote. Leçon de géologie pratique, 1845, 5e All Elie de Beaumont's arguments are admirably controverted by Professor A. Geike in his essay in Transactions of the Geological Society of Glasgow, Volume 3, page 153, 1868. End of footnote. He ignores the continued formation of fresh mould by the disintegration of the underlying rocks and fragments of rock, and it is curious to find how much more philosophical were the views maintained long ago by Playfair, who, in 1802, wrote, In the permanence of a coat of vegetable mould on the surface of the earth, we have a demonstrative proof of the continued destruction of the rocks. Footnote. Illustrations of the Huttonian Theory of the Earth. Page 107. End of footnote. Ancient Encampments and Tumuli. Elie de Beaumont adduces the present state of many ancient encampments and tumuli, and of old ploughed fields, as evidence that the surface of the land undergoes hardly any degradation. But it does not appear that he ever examined the thickness of the mould over different parts of such old remains. He relies chiefly on indirect, but apparently trustworthy, evidence that the slopes of the old embankments are the same as they originally were, and it is obvious that he could know nothing about their original heights. In Knoll Park, a mound had been thrown up behind the rifle targets, which appeared to have been formed of earth, originally supported by square blocks of turf. The sides sloped, as nearly as I could estimate them, at an angle of forty-five or fifty degrees with the horizon, and they were covered, especially on the northern side, with long coarse grass, beneath which many worm castings were found. These had flowed bodily downwards, and others had rolled down as pellets. Hence, it is certain that as long as a mound of this kind is tenanted by worms, its height will be continually lowered. The fine earth which flows or rolls down the sides of such a mound accumulates at its base in the form of a talus. A bed, even a very thin bed, of fine earth is eminently favorable for worms, so that a greater number of castings would tend to be ejected on a talus thus formed than elsewhere, and these would be partially washed away by every heavy shower and be spread over the adjoining level ground. The final result would be the lowering of the whole mount, whilst the inclination of the sides would not be greatly lessened. The same result would assuredly follow with ancient embankments and tumuli, except where they had been formed of gravel or of nearly pure sand, as such matter is unfavorable for worms. Many old fortifications and tumuli are believed to be at least two thousand years old, and we should bear in mind that in many places about one inch of mould is brought to the surface in five years, or two inches in ten years. Therefore, in so long a period as two thousand years, a large amount of earth will have been repeatedly brought to the surface on most old embankments and tumuli, especially on the talus round their bases, and much of this earth will have been washed completely away. We may therefore conclude that all ancient mounds, when not formed of materials unfavorable to worms, will have been somewhat lowered in the course of centuries, although their inclinations may not have been greatly changed. Fields formerly ploughed. From a very remote period, and in many countries, 
land has been ploughed, so that convex beds, called crowns or ridges, usually about eight feet across, and separated by furrows, have been thrown up. The furrows are directed so as to carry off the surface water. In my attempts to ascertain how long a time these crowns and furrows last, when ploughed land has been converted into pasture, obstacles of many kinds were encountered. It is rarely known when a field was last ploughed, and some fields which were thought to have been in pasture from time immemorial were afterwards discovered to have been ploughed only fifty or sixty years before. During the early part of the present century, when the price of corn was very high, land of all kinds seems to have been ploughed in Britain. There is, however, no reason to doubt that in many cases the old crowns and furrows have been preserved from a very ancient period. Footnote. Mr. E. Taylor, in his Presidential Address, Journal of the Anthropological Institute, May 1880, page 451, remarks, quote, It appears from several papers of the Berlin Society as to the German high fields, or heathen fields, Hochacher and Heidenacher, that they correspond much in their situation on hills and wastes with the elf furrows of Scotland, which popular mythology accounts for by the story of the fields having been put under a papal interdict, and that people took to cultivating the hills. There seems reason to suppose that, like the tilled plots in the Swedish forests, which tradition ascribes to the old hackers, the German heathen fields represent tillage by an ancient and barbaric population. End of footnote. That they should have been preserved for very unequal lengths of time would naturally follow from the crowns, when first thrown up, having differed much in height in different districts, as is now the case with recently ploughed fields. In old pasture fields the mould, wherever measurements were made, was found to be from one-half to two inches thicker in the furrows than on the crowns. But this would naturally follow from the finer earth having been washed down from the crowns into the furrows before the land was well clothed with turf, and it is impossible to tell what part worms may have played in the work. Nevertheless, from what we have seen, castings would certainly tend to flow, and to be washed during heavy rain, from the crowns into the furrows. But as soon as a bed of fine earth had by any means been accumulated in the furrows, it would be more favorable for worms than the other parts, and a greater number of castings would be thrown up here than elsewhere. And as the furrows on sloping land are usually directed so as to carry off the surface water, some of the finest earth would be washed from the castings, which had been here ejected, and be carried completely away. The result would be that the furrows would be filled up very slowly, while the crowns would be lowered, perhaps still more slowly, by the flowing and rolling of the castings down their gentle inclinations into the furrows. Nevertheless, it might be expected that old furrows, especially those on a sloping surface, would in the course of time be filled up and disappear. Some careful observers, however, who examined fields for me in Gloucestershire and Staffordshire, could not detect any difference in the state of the furrows in the upper and lower parts of sloping fields, supposed to have been long in pasture, and they came to the conclusion that the crowns and furrows would last for almost an endless number of centuries. On the other hand, the process of obliteration seems to have commenced in some places. Thus, in a grass field in North Wales, known to have been ploughed about sixty-five years ago, which sloped at an angle of fifteen degrees to the northeast, the depth of the furrows, only seven feet apart, was carefully measured, 
and was found to be about four and one-half inches in the upper part of the slope, and only one inch near the base, where they could be traced with difficulty. On another field, sloping at about the same angle to the southwest, the furrows were scarcely perceptible in the lower part, although these same furrows, when followed on some adjoining level ground, were from two and a half to three and one-half inches in depth. A third and closely similar case was observed. In a fourth case, the mold in a furrow in the upper part of a sloping field was two and one-half inches, and in the lower part four and one-half inches in thickness. On the chalk downs, at about a mile distance from Stonehenge, my son William examined a grass-covered furrowed surface, sloping at from eight to ten degrees, which an old shepherd said had not been ploughed within the memory of man. The depth of one furrow was measured at sixteen points, in a length of sixty-eight paces, and was found to be deeper where the slope was greatest, and where less earth would naturally tend to accumulate, and at the base it almost disappeared. The thickness of the mould in this furrow, in the upper part, was two and one-half inches, which increased to five inches a little above the steepest part of the slope, and at the base, in the middle of the narrow valley, at a point which the furrow, if continued, would have struck. It amounted to seven inches. On the opposite side of the valley, there were very faint, almost obliterated traces of furrows. Another analogous but not so decided a case was observed at a few miles' distance from Stonehenge. On the whole, it appears that the crowns and furrows on land formerly ploughed, but now covered with grass, tend slowly to disappear when the surface is inclined and this is probably in large part due to the action of worms, but that the crowns and furrows last for a very long time when the surface is nearly level. Formation and amount of mould over the chalk formation. Worm castings are often ejected in extraordinary numbers on steep grass-covered slopes, where the chalk comes close to the surface, as my son William observed near Winchester and elsewhere. If such castings are largely washed away during heavy rains, it is difficult to understand at first how any mould can still remain on our downs, as there does not appear any evident means for supplying the loss. There is, moreover, another cause of loss, namely, in the percolation of the finer particles of earth into the fissures in the chalk and into the chalk itself. These considerations led me to doubt for a time whether I had not exaggerated the amount of fine earth, which flows or rolls down grass-covered slopes under the form of castings, and I sought for additional information. In some places the castings on chalk downs consist largely of calcareous matter, and here the supply is of course unlimited. But in other places, for instance on a part of Tegdown near Winchester, the castings were all black and did not effervesce with acids. The mould over the chalk was here only three to four inches in thickness. So again, on the plain near Stonehenge, the mould, apparently free from calcareous matter, averaged rather less than three and one-half inches in thickness. Why worms should penetrate and bring up chalk in some places, and not in others, I do not know. In many districts, where the land is nearly level, a bed several feet in thickness of red clay full of unworn flints overlies the chalk. This overlying matter, the surface of which has been converted into mould, consists of the undissolved residue from the chalk. It may be well here to recall the case of the fragments of chalk buried beneath worm castings on one of my fields, 
the angles of which were so completely rounded in the course of twenty-nine years that the fragments now resembled water-borne pebbles this must have been effected by the carbonic acid in the rain and in the ground by the humus acids and by the corroding power of living roots why a thick mass of residue has not been left on the chalk wherever the land is nearly level may perhaps be accounted for by the percolation of the fine particles into the fissures which are often present in the chalk and are either open or are filled up with impure chalk or into the solid chalk itself that such percolation occurs can hardly be doubted my son collected some powdered and fragmentary chalk beneath the turf near winchester the former was found by colonel parsons r e to contain ten per cent and the fragments eight per cent of earthy matter on the flanks of the escarpment near abinger in surrey some chalk close beneath a layer of flints two inches in thickness and covered by eight inches of mould yielded a residue of three point seven per cent of earthy matter on the other hand the upper chalk properly contains as i was informed by the late david forbes who has made many analyses only from one to two per cent of earthy matter and two samples from pits near my house contained one point three and zero point six per cent i mention these latter cases because from the thickness of overlying beds of red clay with flints i had imagined that the underlying chalk might here be less pure than elsewhere the cause of the residue accumulating more in some places than in others may be attributed to a layer of argillaceous matter having been left at an early period on the chalk and this would check the subsequent percolation of earthy matter into it from the facts now given we may conclude that castings ejected on our chalk downs suffer some loss by the percolation of their finer matter into the chalk but such impure superficial chalk when dissolved would leave a larger supply of earthy matter to be added to the mould than in the case of pure chalk besides the loss caused by percolation some fine earth is certainly washed down the sloping grass-covered surfaces of our downs the washing down process however will be checked in the course of time for although i do not know how a thin layer of mould suffices to support worms yet a limit must at last be reached and then their castings would cease to be ejected or would become scanty the following cases show that a considerable quantity of fine earth is washed down the thickness of the mould was measured at points twelve yards apart across a small valley in the chalk near winchester the sides sloped gently at first then became inclined at about twenty degrees then more gently to near the bottom which transversely was almost level and about fifty yards across in the bottom the main thickness of the mould from five measurements was eight point three inches whilst on the sides of the valley where the inclination varied between fourteen and twenty degrees its mean thickness was less than three point five inches as the turf-covered bottom of the valley sloped at an angle of only between two and three degrees it is probable that most of the eight point three inch layer of mould had been washed down from the flanks of the valley and not from the upper part but as a shepherd said that he had seen water flowing in this valley after the sudden thawing of snow it is possible that some earth may have been brought down from the upper part or on the other hand that some may have been carried farther down the valley closely similar results with respect to the thickness of the mould were obtained in a neighbouring valley st catherine's hill in winchester is three hundred and twenty seven feet in height 
and consists of a steep cone of chalk about one quarter of a mile in diameter the upper part was converted by the romans or as some think by the ancient britons into an encampment by the excavation of a deep and broad ditch all round it most of the chalk removed during the work was thrown upwards by which a projecting bank was formed and this eventually prevents worm castings which are numerous in parts stones and other objects from being washed or rolled into the ditch the mould on the upper and fortified part of the hill was found to be in most places only from two and one half to three and one half inches in thickness whereas it had accumulated at the foot of the embankment above the ditch to a thickness in most places of from eight to nine and one half inches on the embankment itself the mould was only one to one and one half inch in thickness and within the ditch at the bottom it varied from two and one half to three and one half but was in one spot six inches in thickness on the northwest side of the hill either no embankment had ever been thrown up above the ditch or it had subsequently been removed so that here there was nothing to prevent worm castings earth and stones being washed into the ditch at the bottom of which the mould formed a layer from eleven to twenty-two inches in thickness it should however be stated that here and on other parts of the slope the bed of mould often contained fragments of chalk and flint which had obviously rolled down at different times from above the interstices in the underlying fragmentary chalk were also filled up with mould my son examined the surface of this hill to its base in the southwest direction beneath the great ditch where the slope was about twenty four degrees the mould was very thin namely from one and one half to two and one half inches whilst near the base where the slope was only three degrees to four degrees it increased to between eight and nine inches in thickness we may therefore conclude that on this artificially modified hill as well as in the natural valleys of the neighboring chalk downs some fine earth probably derived in large part from worm castings is washed down and accumulates in the lower parts notwithstanding the percolation of an unknown quantity into the underlying chalk a supply of fresh earthy matter being afforded by the dissolution of the chalk through atmospheric and other agencies end of chapter 6 part 2